0: Hey everyone, technical difficulties, wow, great way to start the week already, already anything that can't go wrong has. Welcome, welcome, my name is Charlotte, I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, so that means if you think you might have a paranormal need, we can get to you. I have somebody in almost every county, however, you know, there are places where it takes time to get to so that being said, welcome and uh, have a good show for you today. In fact, today is Sunday reading day and this is the day that we that I read to you guys from a paranormal-themed book. And we have a pretty good one today. We've been reading uh, Rebecca F. Pittman's uh, book on the Salem Witch Trials. And uh, it's been a pretty good book. We're about a little more than halfway through now and uh we're to the point in the book because I, I did read thursday night so we're to the point in the book where the executions are piling up and uh wow you know it's just it's just the way they, the way they did the trials and everything that's just 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 just, just it's the smarts as they say get, get you right here but so uh, we're going to be reading that uh the california hospital team again is out of sacramento california 45 strong uh, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see in here tonight, please be free to hit that follow button if you if you haven't done so already, and uh, hit the share button and uh, hit the happy faces and, and the thumbs up buttons. Uh, show me some love. Um, same thing with if you're watching from YouTube tonight. Please be sure if you haven't already to subscribe. And there's that little uh, ghost down there in the bottom right hand corner with the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass, and uh, that's our mascot. Click on him, and you can you, you can subscribe if you haven't done so already and plus if you like what you hear tonight please be sure to hit that like button okay you can find us in addition you know in addition you can find us on Instagram under ghosty gal all lowercase you can find us over at TikTok under California haunts which of course is all lowercase and over at Twitter which is cal haunts all right anyway welcome 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 it's sunday night and it's raining it's been raining pretty solid supposed to rain through tuesday and then we have two days off of rain and then it hits again for three or four days so uh, hopefully you know we'll get plenty of rain but it's been cold too i mean it's been snowing in california you know people kind of laugh because you know the back east because wow there's snow in california the thing is is that it's not so much there being snow in california because there is snow in california in the sierra nevadas there is snow in some parts of california it's the places where it's snowing that it doesn't normally snow. Like down in central California towards the desert, it's been snowing out there. parts parts of southern California it's been snowing there in the lower elevations because there's still places like Big Bear Mountain that gets snow in, in, in southern California. But this is this this is falling way below that. So they're not used to it, <laughs> you know. And uh it's the Sacramento gets snow god very rarely, but when we do it's it's interesting because it's funny to watch because um let me adjust this the funny thing about it all is is that when it does snow down here you know or in these areas that i'm talking about like like in los angeles area and all that nobody knows how to drive in it so if you're out driving it's it's i know how to drive in it but if you're out driving and you (laughs) and you know an area where it snowed it's kind of fun to watch because people just don't know how to drive in snow right you know like you guys back east so um it can be sad and fun at the same time, watching people maneuver through it. But I know it snowed at least for a couple of days up in um, Rialto, California. I know that because I was watching TikTok and people were filming live, you know, on, on their live showing the snow and stuff. So it's been an interesting weather pattern coming through and it's still coming through. It's right now it's 45 degrees where I'm at, which is cold enough, but it's been dipping down to 32. So we, we've been hitting the freezing mark. Sacramento tends to get too cold to snow. We turn to ice a lot. There's a lot of ice that comes down. And when we do think we have snow, it's usually that hail mixed with snow the, the there's a name for it. I forget what the name for it. I just saw it on the news the other day what the name for that is. Okay. Anyway, like I said, I read Thursday night, part 13. Uh, where we left off was we were just when some alleged witches were going to get it, be executed is where we left off. So that's where we're going to start from. But uh, we so far we've seen, I'm going to calculate my head about eight hangings of witches. And people, um, and then they, hello, Pamela. And people, uh, you know, being accused with no evidence at all. No, no, no real decent evidence. It's sad. It's really sad. Hey, Pamela, I was just talking about the snow. It's been snowing in California, parts of California. I mean, of course, it snows in the mountains, but it's been snowing down in Southern California and stuff. So, I mean, that's unique for us. Okay, let me open this up. I have an old tablet that's on our wish list. I want to start a wish list for you guys so you can see what the, what the show needs. And one of the things the show needs is a new tablet. I've had this tablet for about 15 years already. It's a Samsung Galaxy Note 8. Can't even upgrade it. But I can still I can still get books on it. So <laughs> there you have it. And just a quick warning before I even start. No snow in California, though. No snow. I mean, no snow in Sacramento, though. It's all down in Southern California. It's all, it's all down um modesto all the way down to southern california we didn't get any we did get that weird sludgy thing that the the the, the snow mixed with hail we got that weird snow that weird stuff that's what we call snow okay anyway so uh yeah it's an old samsung 8 and um i can still get books on it so that's kind of cool so like i said we're we're over the halfway point on this particular book try not to hit that I tend to hit that too when i'm doing when i'm reading so here's what you can do you know you don't have to watch me because I, I wouldn't want to sit here and watch me right i wouldn't want to sit here and watch me read from a bloody book or read from a book if you're having if you're making dinner or doing whatever you're doing you could just turn you could just turn the volume up i was going to say turn me on but that is you know that just doesn't quite sound right but uh, you know fl- flip on my voice and that's better flip on my voice and then you can just you know, do whatever you're doing. Put your slippers on, sit by the fire, have hot cocoa, whatever, and just do whatever you're doing, because I'm just going to be reading from this book, and like I said, I'm going to start at 6.37 now, I'll be going to 7.37 tonight with the book, okay? I'm going to read for an hour. So we're at chapter 33, and it's the, it's the history and haunting of Salem, and of Salem, the witch trials, and beyond. Okay, so I think she's going to include some, some paranormal stories in here, too, as we get to the end. And just to let you know, she's the, the, the writer of this book reminds me of a journalist because she she goes through everything. I mean she, she talks to, she looks at other books on the subject. she goes through all the re, all the court rec, you know all the records she can find. So she's very meticulous. So uh, okay also as I put in the disclaimer on here, this is 1600 style English. The parts that she quotes directly from from the historical records. So it, it can be an interesting job reading it. <laughs> so when, when i hit those spots and i have trouble don't think i'm being an idiot or anything i just i have trouble and what i'll do is when i hit when i hit when i, when I hit a doozy I'll, I'll i'll even spell it out for you to show what i'm trying to translate into like today's language okay all right so here we go let me turn this up a little bit so i can move my head around more without like blowing it out Let's see where's that button there's this button there it is excuse me while i do this adjust my buttons there we go. I'm going to bring it up a little bit so I can sit back here. Okay, so the history and haunting of Salem, the witch trials and beyond. And we're at chapter 33, the Lord's Prayer on Gallows Hill. So here we go. After the verdicts of the guilty had been entered in the court documents on August 5th, 1692, five witches, four men and one woman sat in the Salem jail and and thought about their fate. John Proctor was still pleading for his life while others, like George Jacobs Sr., taking care of business. Jacobs, after assessing the actions of his family, wrote a new will, one that would eradicate bequests to his daughter Anne and her husband John Andrews. They had done nothing to help him during the most tragic days of his life. He had originally disinherited his granddaughter, Margaret, as well. But after her her repentance and recanting of her confession of witchcraft, he penciled in a gift of ten pounds in silver for her. The bulk of his will went to his wife, Mary, during her pending widowhood. It included the farm and its holdings. George Jacobs Jr., old Jacob's son, old Jacob's son, okay, yeah, I got it, had escaped during witchcraft accusations and was still unaccounted for. Therefore, Jacob Sr. left him nothing. To his grandson, George, he put him next in line to inherit the farm after Mary. Based on the petitions written from jail and wills drawn up, it is obvious the prisoners were allowed quill and paper. Whether this was brought from home or paid for at the jailkeeper's expense is not known. Many a, frat, okay, many a frantic parchment was etched within the walls of this stone prison. Sheriff Corwin rides again. Even with Jacob's carefully written document, it did nothing to allay the greed of Sheriff George Corwin. Not waiting for George Jacob Sr.'s execution day, the sheriff rode out to the Jacob's homestead in the this, city. This Hang on. Okay. Sheriff Jacobs rode out to the Jacobs homestead in a section of Salem village called North Fields. The farm was spitting distance to the North River, beautifully situated. Before anyone could stop him, he confiscated 79-13-0 pounds, whatever that is, worth 79-13-0 pounds worth of Jacobs farm and personal possessions. With carts lined up along the property, the sheriff and his men tied five cows and one mare to the back of one of the wagons. Nice guy. They loaded up five pigs and an assortment of chickens and geese. Sixty bushels of Indian corn that had been hand-picked and stored by the Jacobs family, along with crates of apples and eight loads of hay, were thrown up under the carts. While Mary Jacobs looked on in horror, the men slammed open her door and walked with heavy boots into the home bereft of her husband. Without ceremony, they took brass kettles, furniture, and pewter. Twelve shillings and silver coin, a gold thumb ring, and Mary's wedding ring were eyed and placed in a small bag tied to the sheriff's hip. The sheriff even took their bedding and an abundance of small things. Mary said that they to that there, see Mary said okay, Mary said that were took clear away. She would later petition and retrieve her wedding ring, as it was not technically George's property, but hers. She had to buy some of the things they took from her pantry in order to survive. Some neighbors rallied around her after the sheriff and his men mounted their horses and rode off with heavy carts. These were the actions that Philip English so feared when he was finally convicted, convinced to flee. For it was the male witches convicted that were fair game for Sheriff Corwin's looting. The female witches, who far outnumbered the men, were considered tied to their tied to their husbands. Their property became the prop became his property under the marriage covenant. Therefore, unless her husband was indicted too, as in the case of the proctors, whom Sheriff Corwin looted upon their arrest and indictment by law, her goods could not be taken. It would be this fear that forced Giles Corey to take tenacious measures when his turn came. On August 17, 1692, only two days before the next executions, Margaret Willard hired a horse and rode to Boston to check on the status of a personal replevin that she had been granted or her husband, John Willard. She had petitioned for it two weeks earlier, and it had been approved. It would buy John a little time and temporarily reprieve him from hanging. The papers had still not shown up, so Margaret, desperate now with the hanging scheduled for the day after tomorrow, made the long ride from Boxford to Boston. Despite her actions, it would come too late. As the days dwindled down to the execution, to the execution date of August 19th, the names of newly accused witches continue to arrive before the magistrates' desks. Francis Hutchins and Ruth. Oh, hang on. Okay, Francis Hutchins and Ruth Wilford of Haverhill had been had been complained on by Timothy Swan, and Putnam Jr. and Mary Walcott. This was only this was only one day before the August 19th hangings. There would never be enough to to satiate the need for carnage that raged inside these afflicted youth. On the eve of the hangings, George Burroughs witnessed the odd juxtaposition of mercy and malice. What? Yeah, the odd juxtaposition of mercy and malice. Margaret Jacobs, granddaughter of old George Jacobs Sr., was given permission to speak with Burroughs in prison. Tearfully, she begged his forgiveness for accusing him and bearing false witness against him her own grandfather, George Jacobs Sr., and John Willard. Burroughs was touched by her broken heart and fully forgave her. They prayed together and she left him there. Meanwhile, in Andover, the Salem village girls, who were there helping in the indictment of their local witches, declared they saw George Burroughs' specter holding another of his famous Satan Sabbaths near the home of John Chandler. They said Burroughs encouraged his Andover coven, to carry on his work and be secretive about their alliance with the devil. His specter then departed to rejoin his physical form in prison. One must wonder if Burroughs, his head bowed in prayer, was the dirty confines of Salem jail, had felt some glimmer of hope at Margaret Jacob's visit, where the magistrates listened to the fact that she had confessed to lying about him. If her confession of witchcraft was fake, shouldn't that shed doubt on the others? It may have been a faint light in a gathering gloom that finally cloaked the room in darkness. The next day, he would be dead. Five Hangings on Gallows Hill The sun rose above the fields, rocky hillsides, and carefully constructed homes of Salem Village and town. The sloshing of the ocean waves in the nearby harbor were drowned out by the excited cries of the crowd gathered outside Salem Jail. The guards were ordered to push the people back to allow for the prisoners to be brought out into the sudden glare of sunlight and hoisted up onto the waiting cart. John Proctor, his nerves failing him, had pleaded with Reverend Nicholas Noyes to pray with him in prison that morning. Noyes turned him down. One does not pray with the devil. Reverend Cotton Mather, who had finally made his way back to the area, may have offered Proctor some solace. Mather was haunted by the entire situation, even more so this grim day. Quote, it would break a heart of stone, Cotton wrote later in the situation, to have seen what I have seen. End quote. A conflux of magistrates and clergy were in attendance that day. Judges Hawthorne, Gedney, and Corbin were there, along with ministers Reverend Nicholas Noyes, John Hale, Samuel Cheever, Zachariah Sims, and Cotton Mather. The formidable Stoughton and Seawall were away in Watertown dealing with church disputes. Finally, the jail door opened and the prisoners were let out. Martha Carrier, frightened but refusing to let these liars see her tremble, John Willard, possibly scanning the crowd for a sign of his wife Mary holding the paper from Boston that would state his execution, George Jacob Sr., unsteady upon his walking sticks, stumbling over uneven ground, Reverend George Burroughs, meek and surprisingly calm, and John Proctor, the muscles jumping in his jawline and tears threatening to give him away were walked to the cart, and lifted up onto it. The wooden planks groaned beneath their weight as their hands were tied to the cart. Perhaps at the sight of Cotton Mather, Mather, the young man sitting quietly upon his horse, dressed in black with pained eyes, John Proctor, suddenly felt a calm come over him. He had a few mornings to look over the heads Excuse me, I'm sorry about that, hang on. He had a few moments to look over the heads of the jeering crowd to the walls of the jail he had just vacated. Within was his wife Elizabeth, carrying even now their unborn child. Was she weeping? How had they come to this? With a few shouted orders, Sheriff Corwin swung his leg over his saddle and motioned the cavalcade forward. Along the rutted roads of Salem Town, the cart jolted, its metal hubs creaking against the weight, and the sudden jarring of frequent rocks that threatened to rip the wooden wheels apart. The five prisoners... Pres- The five prisoners processed the long ride up to Gallows Hill in their own way. A mixture of sights, sounds, and smells were stamped onto their minds as they realized this was the last they would see of the world in which they had participated. The smell of warm horse hides and dried leather wafted back to them from the team and trappings pulling the cart. Their own sweat, mixed with that of of accompanying guards, rose and fell on a fickle breeze faces peering from windows as they rode by, the incongruous sound of of a child's laughter coming from somewhere in the crowd, blotches of sunlight that pierced the eye, only to be blocked out again by buildings, and finally the town fell away by occasional trees. It was this world of color and scent that they may have focused on, choosing these simple sensations over the abrasive shouting of people following their promenade of death. These were their neighbors, ministers, bakers, and butchers, John Proctor had sold ale to some of them, and George Burroughs had preached hope to them from his pulpit. They had, no doubt, helped birth a calf or child, plow a field, or hold a hand during sickness. They prayed for some kind of numbness to turn it all into a calming blur. The day was not with its decides and cruelty. As the progression was nearing its destination, they met the constable from Boxwood who was carrying Rebecca Ames, newly accused of witchcraft, behind him style. Not wanting to miss the hangings, he took his prisoner to the nearest house beneath the hanging ledge and asked the owner, John M- John McCarter, to watch her. If Rebecca Ames looked out from the window, as indeed might have John McCarter, she would have seen her future fate doled out to her during her trial on September 17th. The crowds jockeyed for position along the rocky flatland of Gallows Hill. It, sl- it sloped upward, as indeed the road fl- it flanked. The sheriff had chosen the ledge at its edge, conveniently located, where those passing could see the execution and the hang witches. It also had a ravine with which to toss the victims after their death. It saved the town the expense, the time, and manpower, needing to load up their bodies and find a burial place for them. You can't bury a witch in hallowed ground. There were a couple of cemeteries in Salem Town, none of which would accept the remains of one associated with the devil the condemned lined up beneath the large oak bough with five nooses affixed to it all maintained their innocence looking with the eyes of the damned into the faces of so many people who knew them and should know their hearts there were many weeping some with hands placed protectively to their throats or faces the glittering eyes of the afflicted girls may have been the hardest to see they stood front and center as if claiming this execution as their rightful due for ferreting out the evil in the community. Small children clung to their mother's apron or innocently chased a butterfly as it darted among the farmers and housewives. Cotton Mather, his maturity belaying his youth, prayed with them. It may have rankled Reverend Noise as he stood nearby. There was a perceived change in the air above the crowd. It had quieted. They looked with wonder at the calm of those waiting beside the ladder, propped up against the tree, the five earnestly begged to be forgiven, and then asked for forgiveness from those who brought them there. And then they prayed aloud that theirs would be the last innocent blood spent. Yet, it was it as it was George Burroughs mounted the first step of the ladder and turned to face his accusers that, 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 that their consciences opened and faltered. This small man of Maine, this accused ringleader and king of hell, looked out at the throng with a supreme calm and prayed, he maintained his innocence and closed with the perfect recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Letter perfect, without blemish or pause. He nullified the witch's test as he turned to mouth the remaining, the, the remaining rungs. A murmur ran through the crowd. Many turned to each other in confusion and fear. This was supposed to be an unimpeachable proof that a person was not a witch, for anyone of the devil could not recite the Lord's Prayer without stumbling. Excited faces turned toward the magistrates with the question, hanging in the air. Many had whipped at the tenderness of Burroughs' words and prayers. Now, he had faultlessly recited the prayer upon which so many indictments had hung. One of the afflicted girls, seeing the turning of the tide and not wanting to let the big fish get away, yelled out she had seen the black man whispering the prayer into into Burroughs' ear. The confusion grew. That could not be, because the devil wouldn't have been able to whisper the correct words either. The crowd began to surge forward as if to rescue Burroughs from the ladder. Cotton Mather quickly mounted his horse and, with words that would later haunt him, reminded the crowd of Deodat Lawson's words that the devil is never more simply himself than when he most appears like an angel of light. He gently, he, gently, he here we go, admonished. I'm sorry, I say the word. He gently admonished them that Burroughs was not even an ordained minister. He was not what he appeared to be. Mather's words may have halted the crowd's attempt to disrupt the executions, but it did little to qualm their thoughts in the following days. Four men and one woman were hanged that day. One at a time, they dropped from the rope's end, their own weight betraying them as they struggled for breath. Finally, the girls were quiet. Some people stayed, rooted to the spot in their guilt, others as warriors of death. Finally, the bodies were cut down and carried or dragged to the ledge and tossed in the crevice. It was reported that Burrows had been relieved of his good pants upon his death, as it was customary that the hangman could take the condemned person's possessions. With a final shred of decency not offered him before, he was hurriedly dressed in some of the prisoner's pants and thrown in amongst the others. Dirty leaves were hurriedly flung in over them so poorly that it was recited later that Burroughs' chin and hand could still be seen, along with someone else's foot. For days after the execution the villagers murmured. Burroughs' prayer haunted them. Wasn't that the supreme test of a witch? Cotton Mather was accosted wherever he went. People couldn't let it go. He was so hounded with their questions and his own growing doubts that he uttered that he wished he had never heard the first letters of his, quote, Burroughs' name. Rebecca Ames, the arrested witch who had just witnessed the hangings from the Carter home, confessed at her later inquisition to spare herself the news. Goody McCarter, who had also watched from her back window as the, hauntings took place, as the hangings took place, claimed a specter had stuck a pin in her foot, clearly rattled at what she had just seen, and having an accused witch suddenly thrust into her home. It was clear she regretted her proximity to the newly appointed hanging ledge. Those that waited within prison walls may have breathed a sigh of relief <clears throat> that the next trial and the executions would not happen for another 18 days. Some would plan their escape, others would petition the court, their specters would fly, and more arrested witches would be crammed in next to them as impossible roommates. Elizabeth Proctor would place her hand upon her belly and possibly feel the first stirrings of life. Word would have reached her that her husband was dead. She had, no doubt, heard that Sheriff Corwin had left little behind in her home in his wake of cruelty. Her world had been reduced to this stone prison, and the irony of a dead man's child growing within her. Chapter 34, Eight Firebrands of Hell In the wake of the August 19th hangings, with the obvious introspection brought about by George Burroughs' heartfelt prayers from the gallows, there may have been a, a hope that a new perspective was needed pertaining to the witch trials, allegations, and the court system overseeing them. It was just the opposite. <clears throat> Between mid-July and early September, the outbreak of witchcraft accusations had been coming mainly from Andover thanks to the the auspicious arrival of Abigail Williams and Mary Walcott. Other small towns bordering Salem Village had been infiltrated in smaller amounts in that same time period, such as Raleigh, Boxford, Haverhill, and Bulurka. But suddenly, beginning in early September, only three weeks before the third round of hangings, witches were reported flying about Gloucester, Reading, and Marblehead, Essex County had become coven central. Many of the accusers and accused had, in one way or another, been involved in the Maine Indian Wars. After the August 19th hangings, the largest explosion of witchcraft accusations flooded in. Not the usual retelling of old specters still out on nightly raids, but new names, to this point unheard of by the magistrates. 136 complaints, examinations, and confessions were noted immediately after the hangings and for months to come. It was as if every person wanted to rid themselves of the bothersome neighbour of a bothersome neighbor relatives. And it was shocking how many were relatives, put forth complaints of being tormented by spectres. Whether this was done to make the deadline for the monthly court of Oyer and Terminer is not clear, but it shows an immediacy to jump on the bandwagon while the nooses were hot. Constables from each town's faction were kept busy riding to terrified households with arrest warrants. The jails were literally bursting. One might think that jailkeepers were happy with the debts accruing. Yet often, their bills to the magistrates went unheeded for long periods of time. Keeping prisoners was expensive, even if the food rations and accommodations were sparse. Word had gotten out to the accused following the last executions, confessing you may not hang. So far, this seemed to be the case. All five of the latest prisoners who were executed went to their deaths denying they were witches as did Bridget Bishop when she was hanged alone. Thus, the number of people confessing to witchcraft after being hauled into court was astronomical. It caused Cotton Mather to pause once again in his uncertainty. On September 9th, six witches were tried and condemned in the court of Oyer and Terminer. On September 17th, nine more. Due to the influx of prisoners, the court sat more than once that month. On September 22nd, eight of the fifteen found guilty were hanged. It is worth noting that five of the 15 who escaped the Hanging's Noose had indeed confessed. Rebecca Ames of Boxford, Mary Lacey, and Anne Foster of Andover, Dorcas Hoare of Beverly, Abigail Hobbs of Topsfield, Frances Dane's daughter Abigail Faulkner from Andover was given a stay of execution due to her pregnancy. Mary Bradbury, one of the condemned, was hidden from the authorities by her friends, possibly due to her ill health or her elevated station in life it doesn't appear the magistrates spent much time looking for her. While some felt the disinterest in hunting down Mary Bradbury, a confessed witch who was accused of even haunting ships at sea, such as bias for the rich folks, oh, I'm sorry, ships at sea, as a bias for rich folks, they were also disenchanted with the liberty given to Dorcas Hoare. This was the same woman who had shouted at the afflicted girls during her inquisition, God will stop the mouth of liars, Only days before her execution she suddenly confessed and was given a temporary reprieve by the magistrates offering her a little time of life to realize and perfect her repentance for ye salvation of her soul. Many wondered, including the mild Reverend Hale, if Dorcas was confessing at the eleventh hour as a means to save her immortal soul or her tender neck. The hearts and minds of Essex County were uneasy. The stark reality was that professing innocence would get you hanged while all the confessors gained a reprieve, albeit a temporary one for now. Why did so many suddenly come forward and confess? And not only confess to their own sins, but point out even more witches the court had missed so far. Within families, living beneath the same roof, some confessed, and some held steadfast to their innocence. Reverend Hale tossed and turned over the notion that if people like Margaret Jacobs, who had named so many witches and confessed to her own involvement, can now recant that confession and be left from the gallows for now, what did that mean? Who were the liars and who were the tr- truth tellers? Samuel Willard had the dubious distinction of being the only male to stand before the court in September. The September 9th trials found Martha Corey of Salem Village, Alice Parker and Ann Putter of Salem Town, and Mary Etsy of Topsfield guilty. On September 17th, Mary Parker of Andover. Margaret Scott of Raleigh, and Wilmot Red at Marblehead were also sentenced. Anne Pottier filed a petition claiming the testimonies sworn out against her by Sarah Churchill, Mary Warren, and John Best were altogether false and untrue. To back her claim, she pointed out to the courtroom that John Best had once been publicly humiliated by whipping, by whipping in the town common on allegations of his being a liar. It all fell on deaf ears. Martha Corey, still full of salt and vinegar, despite her long stay in prison, railed at the court. Samuel Parris, always willing to turn over a fellow parishioner, called upon Corey in prison to add pain to her already helpless position. He was about to make an announcement in church. During his sermon sermon on on September 11th, he spoke from the pulpit saying, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have... and ye shall have tribulation. But be thou faithful unto death, and earn a crown of life. The reverend then asked the congregation to vote on the question of Martha Corey's excommunication, as she had been found guilty of witchcraft and aligning with the devil. Quote, by general consent, not unanimous consent, she was voted out out of the church. Paris, along with several others chosen from the Salem Village Church, informed her on September 14th, only days before her hanging, that she would be excommunicated, her name, along with that of Rebecca Nurse, would no longer be found among the church records. Martha Corey, like Nurse, had been, a church, had been a church, had been a church, had been a church member. I'm sorry, some of these words. The devil, his fingers placed upon the chess piece, of the bishop, had played the game well. Paris, usually effusive in his notes, declined to write down the. Vi- the vitriol, this announcement excited in Martha. He merely noted that she was very obdurate, justifying herself and condemning all that had been done, all that had done anything to her just, just discovery and condemnation. The interview with her in jail had not lasted long. Paris only wrote that it was short, for her imperiousness would not suffer much. While poor Rebecca Nurse had been carried into church and forced to hear the dreadful words that she was no longer worthy to be among the elite of God, Paris chose, judiciously, to give Martha Corey the news in jail. The prison walls had heard such words as those that flew from her mouth. The church meeting house had not. Mariette, ever compliant and meek, had nonetheless spent the preceding months petitioning the courts for trials that relied more on fairness and reason than had their examinations. It was too late for Rebecca Nurse, her sister, but she and her third sister, Sarah Cloyce, were still in danger of hanging. They begged that the magistrates listen to the myriad petitions and testimonies of their neighbors and families. They were God-fearing, church-growing women. The fact that Sarah Cloyce had slammed the door in defiance at said church was a minor detail. Etsy, in her submissive role as a mere village housewife, appealed to the power of the magistrates to help her and her sister in their pitiable positions. In writing, they asked, quote, that you who are overjudges that you who are judges would please to counsel to us, to direct us wherein we might stand in need. End quote. They asked that accusations against us as witches, either by those afflicted or confessing witches, not be improved to condemn us without other legal evidence. These were the exact guidelines the several ministers had advocated, yet it still failed to soften the hearts of the magistrates. Dated September 15, 1692, Mary, probably realizing the court had not been moved by her first petition dated September 9th, showed her true depth of character by sending in her final words in hopes of saving the lives that came after her. Quote, I petition to your honors not for my own life, for I know I must die, and and my appointed time is set, but the Lord, he knows it is that if it be possible, no more innocent blood may be shed, which undoubtedly cannot be avoided. In the way and course you go in, I question not but your honours does to the utmost of your powers in the discovery and detecting of witchcraft and witches, and would not be guilty of innocent blood for the world, but by my own innocence. I know you are in the wrong way. The Lord, in His infinite mercy, direct you in this great work, if it be His blessed, if it be His blessed will that no more innocent blood be shed. I would humbly beg of you that your honours would be pleased to examine those afflicted persons strictly and keep them apart sometime and likewise to try some of these confessing witches I being confident there is several of them has be, ha, has belied themselves and others as will appreciate as will appear if not in this world I'm sure in the world to come whether I am now a going and I question not but you'll See an alteration of these things they say myself and others having made a league with the devil, we cannot confess I know and the Lord knows us as will shortly appear they belie me and so I questioned not but they do others the Lord above, who is the searcher of all hearts knows that as I shall answer and at the tribunal seat that I know not the least things of witchcraft, therefore I cannot I dare not to believe. to to belie my own soul. I beg your, your honors not to deny this my humble petition from a poor, dying, innocent person. And I question, not but the Lord will give a blessing to your endeavors. Giles Corey's death. Three days before the third execution was to take place, the husband of Martha Corey, Giles Corey, was sentenced to the cruel punishment of hard and strong punishment he had stood as witness against his own wife but knew now the girls were liars the long months in jail had given him a new perspective of just how these wheels of justice turned no matter what you said on behalf of your good name it would not help you he therefore in a mind he had admitted belonged to a poor man he decided to stand mute and not answer to any allegations at all thus during this trial On September 9th, although he professed his innocence on all allegations, when he was asked a formal question of how would you be tried, he said nothing. The usual response is, by God and country, upon which the court would then pass sentence. But Giles stood as a statue, glaring at the table of magistrates, and said nothing. They could not continue with the verdict without his participation. They asked him again, threatening the punishment of pressing. But he stood stoic. It was not just in defiance of the court that had railroaded somebody before him. It was a pragmatic way of keeping his possessions from the greedy clutches of Sheriff Corwin. Until he received an indictment of guilty legally, the good sheriff could not confiscate his goods. As stated earlier, Giles Corey made out a renewed will in prison, hoping to thwart Corwin's band of looters. On Monday, September 19th, Giles Corey was taken, taken out To a field across from the jail and placed in a shallow pit. It was barely an indentation in the ground. His arms were outstretched and bound to stakes, pounded into the hard ground. His ankles were likewise tied. A large board was placed upon his chest, and the first massive stone was put upon the board. Beneath the blistering sun he lay, a team of men surrounding him, awaiting his statement. As the day wore on, more large boulders were placed upon the board. Sheriff Corwin would come and go, asking if the prisoner had said anything. The answer was always no. The sunset and nighttime brought with it a relief from the sun, but the gnawing of insects. To the surprise of those who watched the sunlight of day two wash across his pockmarked face, they found a man still resolute and unflinching. He was allowed a small portion of bread and a sip of water. Then more rocks were added to the board. The object of the pressing was to garner a confession or statement from a prisoner. Some surely died beneath the treatment, but most, their breathing becoming labored and their ribs threatening to crack, usually faltered. Not Giles Corey. Even the pleadings of his good friend, Thomas Gardner, would not sway Corey from his path. His second day ended, his face blistered, his lips parched, and his eyes blurred by sunlight. By morning, he was half dead. It has been reported that both Judge John Hawthorne And Sheriff Corwin came to Corey on the third morning and asked him again to answer the court's questions. The prisoner's cracked lips moved, his dry tongue struggling to move inside a mouth devoid of moisture. One of the men leaned over to hear his words. In a raspy, oxygen deprived voice, he managed to utter more weight. His tongue lolled to the side, and reports say that Hawthorne or Corwin forced it back into his mouth with their walking cane. Sometime soon after, Beneath the weight of multiple boulders, Giles Corey died. As it took three days for this stubborn farmer to perish, one wonders if the cart bearing his wife to the gallows may have passed by the site where he lay beneath the board of stones. Giles Corey had withheld the two things the magistrates and sheriff wanted most, to declare him a wizard and hang him, and for him to leave his his door open to the thievery of of the sheriff. And for him to leave I'm sorry, and for him to leave his door open to the thievery of the sheriff. He died without giving them either. Corey's written will held. It was legal and binding, and his property went to his heirs. Sheriff Corman did ride out to the Corey farm to see what he could get. His son in law, John Moulton, gave him eleven pounds six zero, and the matter was settled. Moulton also paid Giles and Martha's outstanding jail fees. Several condemned witches were still in hiding in hopes that whole hysteria would blow over. Elizabeth Colson had managed to escape and keep out of sight for a full four months. She was finally found in Charleston and brought back to face her fate. Constable Timothy Phillips brought her to Salem Town for her questioning. She was handed off to Cambridge Jail to await her punishment, along with her mother, Mary Colson, Aunt Sarah Dustin, and Grandmother Lydia Dustin. During the week leading up to the September executions, Business went on as usual in the courtroom. Many depositions were heard, more prisoners brought in and questioned. It was a busy time for the scribes and judges. The jails continued to fill unabated. The pounding sound of the gavel pronouncing death was as evasive as the pounding of nails at the barn raising. Eight Firebrands of Hell. The morning of Thursday, September 22nd, dawned with promise of rain and length drought after lengthy drought. As the cart laden with seven witches and one wizard made its way to the long and jolting made its way along the long and jolting road to Gallows Hill, a slight breeze brushed the sweating faces of the prisoners. There was a hint of fall in the air. The trees were turning, and the waters of Salem Harbor had become more of a gunmetal gray beneath the season sky. Mary Etty, Anne Puttier, Alice Parker, Margaret Scott, Wilmot Reed, Mary Parker, Martha Corey, and Samuel Mordell listened to the rhythmic thunk, thunk, thunk of the wooden wheels as the cart rolled over the causeway at the North River. The road was deeply rutted, and suddenly the cart lurched to one side. One of the wheels had sunk into a deep gouge in the earth. As men hastened to roll the wheels forward, several of the afflicted girls, who were following closely behind their victims, shouted out that it was the devil that had caused the cart to stop. He was trying to save his followers from hanging. The ledge came into view, and the accused saw their Golgotha. I hope I said that right. Gold Gotha. There were no wooden crosses, only a large oak with eight nooses swaying in the fall breeze. The crowd scurried up the steep embankment and positioned itself for the best view. The long ladder was placed against the bow, and a silence fell over the throng. A prayer may have been offered, but again, it was the touching last words of the accused that moved many in the assembly. Mary Etsy, pious and meek until the end, said goodbye to her husband, children, and friends, whose faces were twisted in agony. All her petitions had not saved her. Many were weeping openly. Martha Corey, despite her recent excommunication, still proclaimed herself a gospel woman. Till the last. She declared her innocence and spoke briefly, her speech flying defiantly, in the face of the Puritan rule, that women did not speak in public. It was her final tenacious act, and she concluded her life with an imminent prayer. Samuel Wardell mounted the ladder and turned to say his peace, but smoke from the executioner's pipe blew on the breeze into Wardell's face and choked away his final words on earth. The afflicted took advantage of this sad moment and yelled that the devil had blown the smoke into the dying man's face to silence him. Eight people dropped to their deaths. Mary Etsy would not be coming home. Wilmot Reed would be a fishmonger's wife no longer, cleaning his catch and telling the books. Anne Potator, once wealthy and twice widowed, would not have her conviction reversed until 1957. Centuries after the colony's general court cleared the names of other accused and executed witches. Martha Corey, perhaps only minutes before seeing the body of her dead husband in, in the field across from the jail, followed him to whatever waited on the other side. Alice Parker and Ann Putteater had fallen beneath the sword of Mary Warren's spectral evidence. She had seen the two local women sticking pins in their poppets, resembling Mercy Lewis and Mary Walcott. 77-year-old Margaret Scott had fallen on hard times in her life. Like Sarah Good, she had been reduced to asking for help from her neighbors. She was living on donated land, and occasionally was without firewood and food she would no longer be a burden on the inhabitants. Sam, Samuel Wardwell, Andover, 49, had been accused of being a fortune teller with an uncanny ability to see into people's darkest secrets. I wonder how Wardell could tell so true was said of him. One wonders if his crystal ball had shown him this day. Reverend Nicholas Noyes looked up at the eight bodies twisting in the breeze and intoned, what a sad thing it is to see eight firebrands of hell hanging there. The tree branches suddenly thrashed about as a large gust of wind swept through the crowd. Eerily, the bodies swung in greater arcs. All eyes turned to the skies that were darkening quickly. Had it occurred to them that the scene was reminiscent of the events following the death of Christ, when the heavens opened up and rain gushed down? Or by now, with all that had happened, were the scriptures forgotten? As the crowd hurried home to their families in pious prayers, the clouds let loose their heavy let loose their heavy burden. That night, seventeen-year-old Mary Herrick listened to the night sounds outside her second-story window in her home in Wenham, Massachusetts. Winham, although a close neighbor to Salem, had been left unscathed from the witch hysteria. It was then quite frightening when through the shadowed recesses of the ceiling beams, a form materialized and spoke to her. Quote, I am going upon the ladder to be hanged for a witch, but I am innocent. And before a twelfth month be passed, you shall believe it. The ghost identified herself as Mary Etsy, and then disappeared. Chapter 35, The Table's Turn For some time, Mary Harriet kept the vision to herself. She believed those that hung were indeed guilty of witchcraft and wanted nothing to do with it. Yet, shortly after Etsy's prophecy, she began to experience unexplainable pains. A natural affliction was sought, but none was found. And then one night, just as Mary Etsy had appeared to her, another shape appeared in the most unlikely guise. It was it was astoundingly the spectre of Reverend John Hale's wife. After that, Mrs. Hale came on a regular basis and, according to Mary Herrick, choked and pinched her. After many special after many spectral attacks, Mrs. Hale's preparation was joined by that of Marietti, who merely looked on quietly. Etsy made as if to speak, but did not. The specter of Mrs. Hale finally addressed Herrick. Do you think I am a witch? Hale asked. No, yelled Herrick. You be the devil. It was now that Mary Etsy's specter spoke the words that began the fall of the witchcraft scaffolding. She told Mary Herrick that she had been put to death wrongfully and was innocent of witchcraft, and she came to vindicate her cause. Etsy better to reveal this to Mr. Hale and Mr. Garrish, and then she would rise no more, nor should Mrs. Hale. Herrick ran to her pastor, Reverend, Reverend Garrish, and went in, and related the tale of the nightly visions and attacks to him. He questioned her at length and made a record of the account. She remained consistent in the telling of it, and he was convinced she was relating what she called the delusion of the devil. Garish asked Reverend Hale from nearby Beverly to come to see him, and related Mary's account to him. Reverend Hale listened incredulously with a sinking heart as he heard his own wife had been accused. He knew his wife knew her good heart and steadfast faith in God. There was no one; there was not one ounce of truth that she was dabbling in witchcraft or would confer with the devil. As he sat there, dread running through him, he was suddenly hit with the clarity that it, that the imprisoned had prayed for knowing his own wife incapable of things of which she had been accused. Then, how many others were also falsely accused? Spectral evidence was madness. How many innocent lives had been ripped from their homes, thrown into rotting prisons and hanged? He felt physically ill. As he sat in his study and looked to the scriptures and other writings for guidance, another thought hit him as hard as the first. If a witch already hanged the dead, such as Mary Etzi, could still come back, and haunt the living. Then what purpose did it serve to hang them to start with? Had the eight pounds of chains clamped to their ankles kept them from flying about and attacking the girls? And now, death had not purged Essex County of spectral attacks. It was indeed a complete madness, an exercise in futility built upon lies. Reverend Hale did not keep these revelations to himself. He would speak out. He now knew in his heart how John Proctor must have felt when his own wife was accused. Proctor was dead by only a few days' time, but if Hale could help it, there would be no more death based on spectral evidence. Many ministers outside of the reach of the Salem Hysteria were already lobbying for the trials to halt. It was interesting to see towns like Plymouth, who did not allow a small circle of hormonal girls get out of control, look aghast at the desolation caused by these young people who should have been disciplined. But Plymouth, along with other Massachusetts provinces, lacked the likes of Mrs. Ann Carr Putnam, whispering the names of so many into the malleable minds of her daughter and friends. It was perhaps fortunate that many outlining towns were not on Mrs. Putnam's wooden Rolodex. The towns like Boxford and Topsfield, where she knew the names of some that, that rankled found found their way into the afflicted girls' crosshairs, and visited by Ann Putnam, Jr., and Mary Walcott were ransacked by a hit-and-run coven. Luckily, the town awoke from their nightmare quickly, a bald bite minus the largest portion of the accused victims in the Salem Witch Trial annals. As the judges sat inside Boston Chambers and looked toward the next session of the Court of Oyer and Terminer, scheduled to be held in October, the cry and hue from ministers' families and even within their own ranks grew. Winter was coming on. Many other people had been sitting in unhealthy pen-like conditions for months. They were ill, malnourished, and the fear was that they might not last through a long, frigid New England winter. So many families, bereft of their breadwinners, were starving. Plows rusted in the fields, and children, bereft of their mother and caregiver, were suffering, or had been farmed out to other families who were buckling beneath the added cost of caring for them. In short, a pandemic was imminent. A Quaker from Salem, Thomas Mal, came closest to hanging the, the shingle of blame on the Putnam's and others' doors. He said that the witchcraft outbreak had been created by the petty hates and jealousness of, of the community. How many ministers had turned down invitations to preach in Salem village as its ordained minister in the past due to their knowledge that the bickering and battles among the neighbors there were unusually high. Mal asked what happened to Love Thy Neighbor. Reverend Samuel Willard of Boston, whose viewpoints had already come under attack from the magistrates in favor of the trials, and from the afflicted themselves, pressed on with more vehemence than, than ever. He called the girls scandalous persons, liars, and loose in their conversation. How could these people, not even close to being humane witnesses, be afflicted and still be allowed to bear testimony? Wasn't their very affliction skating dangerously near the edge of being in cahoots with the devil. He battled on. God hath not granted to man such a power over another's lives. Increase Mather, who had managed to stay under the radar unless directly asked to participate, suddenly rankled when he saw a parishioner taking their ill child not to him or the ministry, but to one of the afflicted to ask if they thought witchcraft was involved. Mather thundered. Is there not a God in Boston? That you should go to the devil in Salem. His very words aligned the afflicted with the devil, if one was listening closely enough. On October 3rd, possibly fearing another round of the court proceedings, Increase Mather, Mather stood before a conference of ministers and read from a paper called "Cases of Conscience," in which he laid out his objections to the court protocol. He warned about placing too much weight on the credibility of spectral evidence. He attacked the test of touch and renounced white magic, such as in the making of a witch cake. Quote, It is better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person should be condemned. End quote. On October 19th, Mather asked to see the documents pertaining to prison punishments, such as those John Proctor had ridiculed in his petition, specifically trying a prisoner. Note and heel, neck and heels, to coerce a confession. Ah, I'm sorry, not trying, but tying. So uh, specifically tying a prisoner neck and heels to coercive confession. Hog tying, right? It's like hog tying. There seems to be no mention in Mather's cases of consciousness concerning the court-ordered body search for witches' marks or teats. He expounds mainly on those things ethereal that cannot be bottled or tagged. Salisbury magistrate Richard Pike picked up the gauntlet on the contested witches' mark test. The town of Salisbury has seemed to fall outside the witch's fly zone. Richard Pike's only involvement had been the occasional fi- filing of a, disposi- a deposition against Susanna Martin, who was known there. Who was known there? As some farmers came to him with de- with depositions con- concerning her witchcraft, he would often look up at them from his table and Riley say, "It's a pity you didn't tell the story four and twenty years ago when it happened." When St- when Muselton Stahl from the neighboring Haverhill resigned his position as judge on the court of Oyer, Oyer Interminer, it piqued Pike's interest. Just what was all this hullabaloo about? He rode over and looked into it, especially reports concerning Mary Bradbury and Susanna Martin. What he saw did not please him. After witnessing the trial of George Burrows in August, Pike wrote a letter to Judge Corwin, judiciously signing it only with his initials. No sense in risking being the next one on the afflicted's list. In the letter, Pike admonished, admonished the judge that innocent lives were being handed over to the wrong people. He said the way the courts were currently operating only opened the doors to the pleasure and passion of those that are minded to take them away. The witnesses were not only informers, but sole judges of the crime. Pike was on a roll. And perhaps gaining courage from, the, from not signing oh my god and perhaps getting encouraged from not signing of the diatribe with all his initials he attacked pretty much the entire infrastructure of the court's platform how exactly could the judges prove with witchcraft by spectral evidence that actually showed people dining in the parsonage's pasture the devil had carried christ to a mountaintop and promised him pretty things if he would join him yet left him innocent and what of witches marks pike asked Finally, addressing the elephant in the room, how often, he wrote, might a superfluity of nature as the piles be the cause of some blemish on a person's body? Piles, or hemorrhoids, was exactly the abnormality found on Rebecca Nurse that she explained was the result of years of bearing children. Under these flimsy examinations, Pike wrote, it was recommended to leave the guilty person alive until further discovery than to put an innocent person to death. Pike then encapsulated the entire mad concept of what the judges were, were taking as gospel. How he basically asked, Can you believe that people standing before you accuse of witchcraft who are direly trying to save their lives would then send their shapes flying around the courtroom to torture the afflicted parties right in front of you? Would that be giving you just more of the evidence you're seeking? Would the devil, trying to keep his witches from the scaffold, allow that to happen? if that is the notion upon which you hang your hats? It was a salient point that no one had thought to point out. It made a mockery of the entire judicial process. The fact that the recipient of the letter, Judge Jonathan Corwin, had failed to heed the accusation against his mother-in-law, Margaret Thatcher, was another point not finding favor with the locals. If all the accusations of witchcraft were based on truth, why wasn't there an arrest warrant made out for the judge's kinswoman? Finally, Thomas Brattle of Boston, an intelligent man that boasted enough skills to land him as the upcoming treasurer of Harvard, of Harvard, also wrote a letter, citing his full name and addressing it to include all the magistrates with a dear sir. He backed up Pike's beliefs on the use of spectral evidence. Without fear, Brattle attacked the court, writing that it was disgraceful that the magistrates had based their judgments such evidence as common gossip, irresponsible confessions, and the hallucinations of young girls, whom he condemned as, li- as liars. While addressing all those who had taken part in the pers- in the persecutions of the innocent, he singled out Salem, where this sort of gentleman does most abound. Lady Phipps is accused. While the governor of Massachusetts, Sir William Phipps, was away, was away dealing with business not related to witchcraft. His indomitable wife, Lady Mary Phipps, took it upon herself to sign a pardon for one of the prisoners, who happened to be an acquaintance of hers. The woman was released and disappeared into parts unknown. On September 29, 1692, Sir William returned to Boston to find not only jails spilling over with inmates, but his own wife was now accused of being a witch. It seems the local witch hunters frowned on Lady Phipps' Illegal release of a prisoner accused of devilry. The girls' accusations had now reached the level of ludicrous, accusing Reverend Samuel Willard as an attacking specter when the reverend's preaching about what the devil would and would not do came perilously close to denouncing the girls' accusations. The girls had been corrected that time, with the court covering its butt by saying they must have met John Willard, accused witch. They had merely gotten the names mixed up, right? But now, they had aimed too high. They had accused the wife of the governor of Massachusetts. The judges, wiping spectral egg from their faces, were beginning to blanch at the onslaught of criticism. They were coming off as idiots. Reverend Hale bottled it by saying, "It cannot be imagined that in a place of so much knowledge, so much in so small a compass of land, should." Leap into the devil's lap at once. The October session of the Court of Warrior and Terminer was delayed as the disgraced judges decided to put the whole mess into the returning governor's lap. They had a freshly they had a freshly provided way to encourage the governor's hand in the matter. His own wife was now in danger of the noose. Sir William wrote the King of England with a facilitating missive, on one hand complimenting the magistrates on their handling of the witchcraft business, yet on the other hand, finding that the devil had taken upon him to assume the, the shape of several persons who were doubtless innocent, and to my certain knowledge of good reputation, I am, my wife. He had called off any further warrants to be issued. He also told the crown that he was putting a lid on any written material that might kindle in, in any flames, namely Thomas Bratt- Brattle's letter, in a whining tone. That may not have impressed the throne of England. He ended with a plaintive wail that people are seeking to turn it all on me. It was clear the fingers of blame were now pointed in every direction, and finally, at the ones who had started it all, several young girls from Salem Village and the afflicted who joined their circle. The outcry now was heard far and wide. Andover began it. On October seventh, 1692, Seven of the town's inhabitants petitioned the court for the return of their women and children, citing the appalling conditions within the prison walls, the impending winter, and their continued association with poor, distressed creatures as full of inward grief and trouble as they are able to bear up in life withal. Petitions came not only from Andover, but from Haverhill, Gloucester, Chelmsford, and Topsfield, asking for the release of their kin on bond. When the court balked and it became evident the next trials had been postponed from the beginning of October, and over residents became more forceful. On October 24th, 24 citizens wrote that they found the afflicted girls as distempered persons and condemned the way of their testimony had been given and condemned the weight and condemned the weight and condemned, ugh, ugh, and condemned the weight their testimony had been given in court. We know no one who can think of himself safe. If the accusations of children and others who are under diabolical influence shall be received against persons of good fame. From Brattle's letter to Governor Phipps' address to the king to this missive from Andover, one central theme remains the belief in the devil is absolute. The Puritan belief in the twin heads of good and evil never wavered. It was not in dispute that Satan was alive and well and targeting, and targeting Ethrus County. It was the evidence presented to confirm he was using innocent people to advance his cause and the suspicion that these young people were his harbingers. The girls had gone too far, and the tide of approval had turned against them in a big way. Okay, that's it. That's all I'm reading for today. Um, we will continue this next Sunday. And thank you all for attending today. Let me close this off. What an interesting book, and what an interesting situation. Very, very interesting. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming and listening. I really appreciate it. I know it's Sunday, and everybody's trying to get wrapped into... Let me click. Okay. Everybody's trying to get wrapped into getting going on Monday to work and everything else. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating book. You know, it's just... I never knew all this about the witch trials. I, I just knew ba- you know, basic stuff from what I've seen on TV. I've never seen detail like this. So... It's fascinating to me to read this book. Tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. Pacific we got a special guest coming on Fans of Discovery Channel, fans of uh, all those adventure shows, Pat Spain is going to be on tomorrow. Pat Spain legend hunter and uh, he's he's had a couple other shows on Discovery. Yep, he's going to be here tomorrow 6:30 p.m. Pacific, something you don't want to miss. So I'm excited about it as well. Okay? Anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, Share it with five of your enemies. I'm equal, We are equal opportunity here at California Health Radio. Also, um, like I said, if you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already, follow, sign up to follow. Looking for followers. And also, you know, show me some love. Show, you know, hit that like button. Hit that thumbs up button. Whatever you need to do. Same thing with uh, YouTube. Down in the bottom right-hand corner, click on that little ghost and that'll subscribe you to our videos we've got 536 videos I think maybe more over there it's 536 videos over there and I'm a journalist and I like to vary my topics so if you go through all those videos and take a look I'm sure you'll find something that you have that, that appeals to you so please do that if you haven't done so already please subscribe and again if you like what you see show me some love hit that like button okay guys I'm gonna call it a night it's Sunday and I'm gonna go make my dinner now okay Thank you for coming, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 when we interview Pat Spain. So have a good rest of the weekend.